This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here, and it's time again to thank our new Patreon subscribers. So here we go. UFO Jesus, Derek J, Ryan W, Ian C, Paul H, Greg M, Timothy C, Trigve H, Robert McG, Gaza T, Sarah, MJP, Jerry McL, Aaron D, Shauna W, Raphael L, Laura M, Teddy Z, Austin L. John, Howard R, John McN, Sebastian, Charlotte G, Ron Z, Pablo V, Michael M, Brenna G, Margot N, Ron L, Rob K, and not a disinformation agent. That's a pretty witty one, whoever did that. I hope you all enjoy your early editions of the podcast, your bonus episodes, and all the rewards at whatever level you support. The podcast is always free to consume, but it's not free to create. So every single penny you contribute goes back to making the show better and allows me more time to create as much content as I can for all of you. Thank you so much to all past, present, and future Patreon subscribers. To learn more and to become a subscriber, visit patreon.com slash skies. And now let's get to this week's special panel discussion. Early during the first lockdowns, a group of diverse voices in the podcasting and television worlds got together to talk all about alien abductions and a lesser-known cryptid creature. Curated and hosted by Derek Hayes of the Monsters Among Us podcast and Shannon LeGrow, host of Into the Fray Radio, I had the amazing opportunity to join our other panelists, which included... Micah Hanks of the Micah Hanks Program and creator of the Debrief Media News Site. Rob Morphy, co-host of the highly popular Kryptonaut Podcast. And our resident cryptozoologist and monster hunter, Lyle Blackburn. Lyle walks us through the lesser-known and terrifying stories of the lizard man of Scape or Swamp. And then we go deep into the very controversial topic of alien abductions. My special thanks to Derek and Shannon for letting me share this awesome discussion with all of you, and I hope you enjoy. 
I am Shannon Legro of Into the Fray, and along with Derek Hayes of Monsters Among Us, we created this paranormal podcast ellipse. And this is the third and final edition. And on this round, we have an amazing panel to cover not only alien abductions, but the lizard man of Skateboard Swamp. So, sorry, that's my bird in the background. Holy God. Um, so I want to just go through really quickly and introduce everybody. I'm sure most of our, our listeners, our watchers know who these panelists are, but I want to go down the line. And I want to start with Mr. Micah Hanks. And he is, of course, uh, he's an author. He is a podcaster of a plethora of podcasts. We don't even have time to mention all those, right, Micah? So, you know, you guys can find him weekly on the Micah Hanks program. Welcome, good sir. Well, good to be here. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in the hallowed halls of this digital realm that now everybody's occupying, strange times, but I guess stranger times for us since we all kind of keep it pretty strange anyway, huh? Oh, we like keeping it real strange around these parts. Yes, we do. Uh, Next up is Rob Morphy. He is part of the Triple Threat over at the Cryptonaut podcast. And might I just say, Rob, and I hazard to say I think I know where your art came from. Your logo for Cryptonaut is maybe one of the most bad to the bone and original logos I've ever seen. So Rob Morphy of Cryptonaut, welcome. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's an honor to be here among uh, all of my esteemed colleagues, and I'm I'm really glad to participate. And uh, and yes, yes, we uh, we love we love our pop culture icons over at Kryptonaut, and we embrace them almost as much as the paranormal. So uh, thank you for having us. Absolutely, and of course, who better to have on if we are talking Speaking the Lizard which, Man than Lyle Blackburn himself? He literally. Boom. There he goes. Look at that. He's, he's repping right there. Yeah. Lyle literally wrote a book on the lizard man of Bishopville. And that is what we were covering in the second half of this live stream author and researcher Lyle Blackburn. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And uh, last but not least, anyone familiar with ITF knows the last lovely gentleman there. And uh, he won't know how fitting this is, but I had this already written out. Um, before this evening started, um, you you know him from somewhere in the skies. I call him Rilo. You may know him as Plaid Man, or you can just call him Ryan Sprague. But it's Ryan Sprague of Somewhere in the Skies podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much. I swear this wasn't on purpose. We didn't plan this. We didn't plan it. <laughs> it was you the first thing I found on the ground. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I thought it would be appropriate. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you guys all for being here. Uh, I, I need to check the the live comments already. So yeah, first up, you know, we're going to run with, with alien abductions. And of course, this is such a hot button topic, and it can go down so many different rabbit holes. Um, I mean, I don't know if anybody wants to, to jump in. I mean, do you have any large thoughts on alien abductions in and of themselves? Like what's going on there? Ryan Sprague, go. Oh, man. Pressure's on. All right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I deal with abductions uh, probably on a daily basis. So uh, this is a topic near and dear to my heart. Uh, It does not, however, mean that I 100% buy into it. I mean, I think there are many things that uh, alien abductions could be attributed to. uh, But when you are left, as I'm sure Micah can agree, with no other prosaic explanation um, as to the veracity of a witness or the person claiming that this happened, um, when you're no longer left with an answer, that's where I really go, huh, 
there, there might be something to this. So, um, yeah, for anyone who knows my work in the UFO field, I deal specifically with witnesses and experiencers. That's my kind of my approach to ufology oh, yeah. is to um, is to deal with the people and how these things affect them in the aftermath of an abduction or a UFO sighting and what role it plays in your life overall. So when it comes to abductions, um, it's a tough subject. It's scary. It's um, uncomfortable. It's controversial. And um, it's extremely traumatizing for a lot of people who claim that this has happened to them. So if there's anything I can say after interviewing hundreds of people who have claimed this, again, the the credibility of the people I've spoken to um, from every walk of life you can think of, every belief system, the fact that this many people are claiming this, uh, there's something to be said about that. What the phenomenon is, I don't know. I'm still trying to figure that out, as I'm sure the rest of us will for the rest of our uh, our lives. So, yeah, that's, that's I guess, my primer to alien abduction. Yeah, you know, if I might jump in on that, too, uh, Ryan, I share your interest in that, obviously, because um, with the UFO subject, even if you are more of a nuts and bolts person who just looks at craft reports, you know, unidentified flying objects, which I primarily do, eventually you're going to get to uh, the designations, you know, the close encounter, you know, the CEs one, two and three is uh, J. Allen Hynek had, you know, laboriously tried to work out designations for, you know, someone sees a landed craft or even maybe a craft still in the sky, but one that's close enough that it's, you know, creating some sort of observable effect on the environment. And then of course, eventually people describing that they see the alleged occupants. And so um, when Ryan says we have to kind of, be careful. Well, I'm paraphrasing, Ryan. Don't let me put words in your mouth, but we have to kind of be careful and say, you know, maybe suspend belief and disbelief and just try to look at what reports, you know, actually describe. There are certainly some credible cases of abduction, but then again, also UFOs, like so many Fortean subjects, are one of those things that we always struggle with the fact that people say that they see things, they have experiences, and yet, where is that physical evidence? Which is interesting because there's a cryptozoological tie-in here, too, as my colleague Lyle certainly is aware of. You know, we've got a lot of a rich history in American Indian legends and mythology of abductions with relation to creatures like Sasquatch and things like that. So for me, I always wonder why is the abduction motif actually prevalent throughout a, a wide range of different fields that fall sort of under Fortiana? You know, I would agree that it is the broad spectrum elements of this that are at times the most intriguing. Um, the, but what fascinates me more than anything else, I think, is the sociological aspect. And this is something a little bit that both you, Ryan, and you, Micah, were, uh, were, were you know, touching on to, which is that whatever it represents, the trauma is real for these individuals. The experience is real in the perception of a lot of individuals, regardless of whether or not it is a corporeal phenomenon or if it is a metaphysical one, or if it is completely psychological. And you literally have to leave the door open to all of it. You have to have genuine sympathy, and, and it's, a, it's a phenomenon that demands to be studied. Um, but but the, the thing about it for me is what keeps me kind of on my toes and, and my skeptic head on is that it's incredibly sloppy science. The, the way these abductions take place, I mean, it really seems like not far removed with uh, – say how a standard human naturalist would put down an elk temporarily, tag them, check their reproductive organs, make sure everything's good, all with like a, you know, benevolent intentions, you know, it, it might scar the animal a little terrified. It wakes up, it runs back to its herd and it's like, dude, 
this happened. And it seems like it's that way for us. And I'm thinking if these creatures really have figured out how to traverse the cosmos in seconds or time itself or create interdimensional portals, if they if they are not enslaved to gravity, why is it that like we see so many stories of like hybrid human uh, gray alien women actively physically seducing men? I mean, that seems to play into a weird psychological construct that goes much deeper and is not scientific in the least. So I find it fascinating on the side where I want to be empathetic towards those who are suffering the trauma of having endured this, no matter what it may be, but objective in the sense that this seems a lot more bizarre and visceral than a simple scientific experiment. This is more than just things coming here to see what's going on scientifically, like the way you, any scientific expedition would, there's something uh, nastier, for lack of a better term. Uh, just from the, uh, and oh, sorry, Lyle, did you have anything that you wanted to, to add in there? Well, I mean, it's it's a subject that I haven't researched heavily. I mean, I'm, I'm more of a uh, observer in that kind of stuff. And I mean, I find the alien abduction category truly frightening. I mean, people, you know, I, I go in swamps and look for unknown creatures and people may or may not think that's spooky to do, but I think the whole alien abduction stuff. And so it's nice in some ways that I can sit back and just kind of soak that in without having to be immersed in the research, you know, but I'm like anybody, any of you guys and, as far as a balanced view of whether this is a true phenomenon or whether there's something else to it. But I, I find it truly fascinating and truly frightening. Hey, that says a lot. If he'd rather be in a swamp looking for critters <laughs> than have to mess with alien abduction, that, that really says something. <laughs> I'd rather be there than on a, yeah. on a craft being, uh, you know, uh, scrutinized, if, if you will. Well, to put it nicely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's been a real nice. I like that. Uh, Rob, do you happen to have a haunted house? I, don't, I mean, I'm not familiar with your actual home, but somebody said they saw an orb behind you. So I want to keep an eye out for that. It could be. It could be a really poor housekeeping, which I plead guilty to. So it could have been it could have been a floating dust bunny catching the light just right, or it could be grandma. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna <laughs> Yeah. Uh so a question from Jeremiah Byron. Uh, of Bigfoot Society. What's up, Jeremiah? Uh, what do you all make of the mass UFO sightings recently in April across the U.S.? Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll hop in, Mike. I can see us both getting ready. Um, <laughs> I mean, I probably, I probably know just as much as Micah does about these events. Uh, we're talking, I believe it was Detroit, Michigan, Cleveland, Ohio, Encinitas, California. Um, we had mass UFO sightings, very similar to the Phoenix Lights, where we're talking these orange orbs, uh, you know, just in a either V formation or a semicircle formation being seen over these major cities. Um, even Tom DeLong, the gentleman we all know now is the UFO guru, uh, caught video of this thing, threw it up on Instagram. And then of course people went nuts. Now what they are, I think that's still being um, investigated, but I know for at least the Encinitas event, um, the military did take, did take responsibility for that being flares uh, just like they did in the Phoenix lights in 1997. Um, but as for Detroit, Michigan and Cleveland, Ohio, uh, I haven't seen any answers for that one yet, but it almost speaks to the, the, um, the greater, the bigger picture here of we're all home now. We're all quarantined. We're all, you know, 
we're not doing our daily routines of going to work and looking at our phones every second or driving in our car. So a lot more people are looking up. And I think that has a lot to do with this as well. People are finally looking up again. Uh, they're finally doing things, um, you know, popping their head out the window to get some fresh air and they're seeing UFOs. So I think we're going to see a big uptick in mass UFO sightings as this quarantine continues. Yeah, there's been an uptick actually over the last several months. Uh, the first interesting report I'd gotten had been, I think, November of last year, and there'd been a pilot who had written to me and said that he had seen something unlike anything he'd observed in years of you know flying. He and his co-pilot both saw this. They said they looked like satellites but that they were all in a line moving in the same direction. And that was a clue because it is true that the SpaceX company has been involved in a uh, internet service, uh, satellite uh, internet service program called Starlink. And this does account for a, a lot, maybe even the majority of UFO sightings, I think that have been coming in recently. But now with regard to Cleveland and Detroit, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to take a skeptical position on certain UFO reports, but when I see lazy skepticism, I just get angry. And there had been a report that tried to explain the Detroit and the Cleveland sightings as having been SpaceX, just SpaceX. I love that. You know, it's kind of like me going to a fruit stand and saying, give me a fruit. Well, what would you like, sir? Would you like a plum or a, a fruit? I said, you know, so let's be a little more specific. All right. So it wasn't Starlink, I think, that was in the videos that we saw from Cleveland and Detroit because we see huge masses of orange globs of light moving through the sky. Uh, that in no way resembles the SpaceX star uh, satellite rather constellation. So I'm looking at these videos and I'm saying, well, just because a lot of people are seeing that doesn't mean everything that everyone is seeing is that my own estimate, actually, if I had to offer a you know, potential solution, uh, I went to the national UFO uh, or rather the, uh, the uh, national UFO reporting center. Uh, and there was actually a report log from Detroit that gave a very good description of the lights as they appeared in some of the videos. They look more to me at least like Chinese lanterns. And this would have actually made sense around the date of April 4th when some of the videos had been made because there were actual traditional celebrations of the Queen Ming Festival that were occurring around that time. We're part of that tradition, that cultural tradition. It's beautiful. They release a lot of lanterns into the sky. And so that may be what some people were seeing. But I don't know that that would account for all the sightings throughout the last several months. So I always tell people to be cautious. If you think that there's a good explanation like SpaceX you know, that doesn't mean it's going to become the catch-all for every UFO sighting that occurs. I don't think that was what was happening in early April. Just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I've received a lot of submissions over the past month and a half, uh, UFO-related, and I'd say close to half of them were probably Starlink, or describing something that seemed very similar to Starlink, at, at least. So uh, I think some of the numbers may be as a result of that, uh, as well as anything else that may be going on. Yeah, no, actually, I agree completely with that. Starlink is now the new weather balloon. Like, it's a catch-all for everything. Like, if there's a UFO, it's got to be Starlink. So we're probably going to hear a lot more of that. And drones. Drones are the biggest one um, that we deal with on a daily basis. So, um, yeah, but I, I think it's I think it's really cool. We haven't seen mass UFO settings like this in a long time. So if I could say anything to anyone watching, um, when you're done watching this, go outside and just look up. For a few minutes. That's yeah. how you see the UFO. It's the, the wonderful and terrible paradox of when we live now is that we finally have the kind of technology we always dreamed of. Like when uh, kids, we watched Close Encounters with Third Kind, like everybody has a high depth camera in their back pocket. We should be able to 
get evidence of anything from cryptozoological phenomenon to ufological phenomenon at the drop of a hat. But of course, uh, along simultaneously, the technology for faking these things and the technology for people independently to put things in the air has grown exponentially with all of the, the you know, the tech that's coming out now. So the problem is the, the easier it should be, because if imagine if we had iPhones during the Phoenix Light Saga, that could have changed things. It could have been a paradigm shift in terms of either being aware of uh, hidden black ops technology or extraterrestrial life. Instead, we get some shady video and, and you know, flare drop stories from the government and it becomes just something that haunts us. Nowadays, it happens. It's drones galore. It's this and that. So it's it's kind of a tough paradox. We're at a, the best time ever to actually get evidence as a people, but at the worst time ever for for them to be able to present it in a way that people will believe it without debunkers being able to jump all over it. And even if they're pulling things out of the reverse side, if you will, it, it still goes over. Another question coming in here from Alex Whitcomb. He would like to know from the panelists, what are your thoughts on uh, alien abduction phenom and connections to OBEs? That's interesting. Um, I've been researching uh, the Avery abduction from 1974. It was for a long time considered to be Great Britain's first, you know, at least on the books abduction. It was a family. They were heading home. They drove into this like thick cloud of like a wall of green fog and they ended up on the ship. There's lots of cool aliens. There's lots of cool. I mean, in the pre gray days when everything was like an esoteric outer, lim- outer limits episode, when everything was just seven arms and 12 foot tall green things with one eye, all the stuff I love, but that I digress. Um, they saw themselves sitting in the car that they had been in as they were, as they were removed. So I think there's something interesting to the thought that, these might not be corporeal phenomenon if they are happening and they have access to technology, not just a couple hundred years, but a couple thousand or maybe tens of thousand years in advance of us. There is nothing to say that they don't need to actually physically remove you from earth. They could just take the essence that is you. Now then of course you would ask, well, then why the heck are you, you know, performing surgical things? I can't answer that. Maybe Maybe the Egyptians were right and our corporeal form and our spiritual form are tied together. And if that's the case, we're screwed. But let's put that where it is for now. Um, But I do think that there is something to the idea that this is not a psychological phenomenon just in the sense that it is something your mind is constructing, but that it is a non-physical phenomenon that leaves you with very real memories of something that you believe actually happened to your body. I don't know if I believe that's the case for every single alien abduction, but it's certainly something um, that bears more research. Yeah, I, I will piggyback off of that. I actually agree with what Rob's saying. A lot of the um, the stuff I'm looking at right now has to do with uh, with consciousness. You know, can we separate this from the body? Is this what is on the other side when we leave this, you know, mortal coil, this meat sack we're in? Um, is the soul literally something that travels to another body or another plane? Um, maybe that is how the quote-unquote... Uh, ETs or whoever are doing these abductions, maybe that's why most alien abduction cases seem dreamlike. Almost every person who comes to me saying they were abducted says it felt like a dream, a vivid dream. Maybe they are separating the consciousness, taking that, doing whatever, and then throwing them back in. Maybe that's why we don't have a lot of physical evidence. Now, again, you could argue these implants and this and scars and everything, but um, 
yeah, I think it's fascinating that that's where the research is heading. This is no longer a little green man kidnapping you onto a craft. It seems like they're almost invading um, upon something even more sacred, and that's whatever's inside of us. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that they could be connected out of body and alien abduction for sure. Mark, they're directed a question to Rob. Is it hell or is it space? I would say, or is it somewhere in between? Something we haven't even thought of yet. The, the, I mean, the tender tether between hell and space that yanks you between both spectrums. Thank you for that, Micah. Um, uh-huh. yeah, no, I'd say I'd say I'm gonna give I'm gonna give both a win on this one. Hell and yeah. space. Yeah. So there it is. There you go. Everybody's happy. Well, and actually, Mary Bittersweet has taken it to a place that I knew it was gonna go. Uh you know, she's just put alien abductions equal fey abductions. What are you guys' thoughts on that? Well, I was merely going to defer to my esteemed colleague, uh, Joshua Cutchin, who is not here with us at the moment. Uh, you know, but I mean, you know, this idea really kind of at least goes back to the late 1960s and, uh, you know, the Magonia kind of approach. This um, almost an ethnological kind of a look at UFOs that seems to kind of grow out of a frustration with study from 1947 up until the late 60s of the physical tangible reality of UFOs until now we're starting to say maybe this approach is flawed somehow and we should look in other places for other evidence. Uh, Jacques Vallée really, I mean, can essentially be credited not only for the idea, but for driving this rift into ufology by presenting it. And yet what he presented was very nebulous. He never really said it is this or it isn't, you know, or, or it is this and it isn't that, you know, I mean, it was more a kind of a, Maybe we should be kind of looking at the continuity that this phenomena presents in relation to things that humans have experienced for, you know, centuries or really since time immemorial, um, which it's less of an answer as it is, I think, sort of a vehicle toward further thinking about the phenomena. Now that a lot of people don't like that, you know, and I always tell people you got to kind of be able to operate on different partitions on the same hard drive, so to speak, you know, or be able to switch into different programs, you know. On the one hand, I like to look at the physical, tangible, you know, phenomena, you know, of UFOs and try to apply science to what few reports can be whittled down and, you know, survive the rigorous IFO screening. But then again, I think at times we also need to be aware of the continuities to the earlier varieties of the human experience. And remember that there would be no ufology or anything else we're discussing here tonight without that human component, that's inevitably going to be a part of it until AI takes over and does it all for us. What what it says to me that's fascinating about the human condition is just like Micah was saying, if you want to be a UFO literalist, then what you will say is aliens have been abducting humans since a time immemorial, but back in the day we saw them as goblins or fays or elves or whatever you want to be. And the fairy houses that look like mushrooms, well, that's the UFO. And if you want to be a non-literalist, because like he like he said, Jacques Vallée did not lay out an answer. He proposed a new way of looking at it. Um, and so if you if you want to be more on the other side, the more mystical and paranormal side, you can be like, no, these supra terrestrials, these intelligent things that have lived on Earth longer than us in their uh, and they have just as much a claim to this place as the rest of us. They are manifesting these things. And as the 20th century rolled around and we got all excited by astonishing legends and started looking at the sky, we started calling them aliens. And in a way, both sides are valid. You could argue it either way. And, and like Micah said, it is exceedingly controversial when it really ought not to be. 
what it should be is this is just a way to look at a phenomenon that seems to be ongoing. And it does not have to be either exclusively extraterrestrial or exclusively Megomia-esque or, or fairy world-esque. It could be an answer. And I will and I will add this caveat here. My idea of all this is that there's always an underlying science, even if we're not there yet. So if we just plug away and try to be as objective as possible and study the, the work, we might not live to see it, but eventually some branch of science will be like, oh no, this is how this can happen. And I think it would behoove us as uh, you know paranormal investigators and just people that are enthusiasts to not be so grounded in, it's not like a sports team. You don't have to be so invested in like the extraterrestrial theory or that. And I used to be one of those guys. I was quite a literalist, but the older I get, the more I'm thinking like, let the information stand as it will and interpret it um, to the best of your ability as what it is and then step from there. But, but, it, but it really is a complex way of looking at it because there are so many different facets that do seem equally at home in folklore and science fiction. This might actually tie in. Sean Crawford has a question. He wants to know what the significance of owls is with alien abductions. I thought maybe that might tie into what you guys have been talking about over the past couple minutes here. Yeah, I'll hop in. I mean, for me personally, as a abduction researcher, um, owls serve as what our mutual colleague, Mike Cleland, I think would say as a messenger. Owls are often seen before an abduction experience, after, and we're talking literal owls, not the idea of a screen memory, which a lot of people say um, is what this intelligence that abducts what they use, something that our minds can fathom and perceive that may or may not look like what they actually look like. Uh, and that's what they use to screen themselves to you. Uh, that's a whole other can of worms. Um, but in terms of owls, they are a mystical creature. And, um, you know, there's so much to that. So I think it's fascinating. You look at some of the um, the biggest abduction cases out there, Whitley Strieber being one of them. I uh, remember seeing owls during an abduction experience. Um, I've spoken to many people who've experienced this. A lot of the literature and television shows and everything out there about abductions have something to do with owls. Now, is it, you know, a chicken or egg situation or how, how does that work? But um, yeah, I find owls fascinating. And if you really want to dive into that, I suggest looking at the work of Mike Clellan, who's written three books about owls and UFOs. But um, no, I'll pass it over to you, Micah. Well, I would actually say that you uh, did such a fine job. Uh, you know, again, I will only reiterate, uh, Mike Cleland has kind of established himself as the authority on that uh, with his two books in the Messengers series. Um, you know, Mike and uh, Andrea were wonderful enough to come all the way to Asheville, uh, I think, last year before last. And uh, we all had dinner, and he uh, left a couple of copies here. But Mike's been here uh, in the studio, and we've... Uh, We've done a couple of episodes about that. He shared some really interesting experiences. Now, culturally and folklorically, the only other thing I would add is just that the owl is sort of emblematic of, you know, mystery. Uh, in that great tradition of Twin Peaks, the owls are not what they seem. Uh, you know, here we have a raptor. Here we have a nocturnal creature, uh, a bird of prey, and yet one also that is symbolic throughout cultures and throughout time, uh, you know, for intelligence uh, primarily. And so it is interesting to me, even if we were to say, let's remove all the possibility that there's an abduction phenomenon, but people recognize that owl as some motif within it. Well, why is that so prevalent? That in itself is interesting because it seems to be almost like an archetypal kind of imagery that is uh, yet again, one of these consistencies that remains throughout cultures and throughout time. 
I will add one small thing that's not nearly as erudite as what Ryan and Micah said. When it comes to the Flatwoods monster, not my owl. That is not an owl. That is a giant, sweet <laughs> robot alien lizard. I don't know what it is, but it's not a dang owl. I just had to say it. I love the Flatwoods. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, just really quick, just to close up this subject, I think I asked this very same thing last time to everybody, but if you guys could finally know that, you know, the whole thing was real, nuts and talking nuts and bolts craft, alien grays, and then you got the tall whites over there in the corner, but you may have to go through some pretty gnarly stuff while on board the craft. You may or may not remember some of it, but you would have the knowing that it was real. Would you guys be willing to go through that? Yeah, I'd do it. Let's party. That's my point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, if Mike is going to do it, I'm doing it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go first and tell you what it's so like. Okay, fine. You be the kid. Oh, you <laughs> but as Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, bring your damn camera to get yeah. photos of it. Please, for God's sake. If you're going to end up exactly in the same boat as so many other people with nebulous memories, a corn shoot that might have a little pain in it, and and no way to convince anybody but to look like a damn fool, I would really need some sort of confirmation that at least I will have a concise memory. I I wouldn't have to write out a contract. I need like six caveats before I am going to subject myself and just randomly be laying around in a road like poor Travis Walton going, oh, man. 
Oh man, did I say yes to this? Why did I say yes to this? This is horrible. I feel icky. I'm going to shower for three days. I don't know if I would fully commit unless I really knew I was getting something out of it. Yeah. You have a great story though, Rob. And you could, you'd have all kinds of things to, to transfer onto the, the art that you, you love to do so much. I mean, you'd probably be doing it in your sleep. You're like, oh, it's so messed up. You know, yeah, but. exactly. The whole part where I'm crying through my sketchbook. Yeah. It yeah. was appealing to me for some reason. Just call me old fashioned. I like to enjoy the things I enjoy. <laughs> Not go through anxiety attacks every time. So we'll I just see. I guess I'm guess I'm a maybe. A right. maybe. We'll leave you in the gray area. All right. Well, let's switch gears. I mean, we've got we've got the man himself here who actually wrote the book on the lizard man of skateboard swamp. And uh, Lyle, did you just want to give a, a quick, you know, a snapshot, a, a rundown of, uh, or what's the word they use in the office that for Jim? Anyway, yeah, give one of those for the Lizard Man uh, in, in over there in Bishopville. Okay, uh, this was a kind of a rather famous, mostly cryptozoological case that occurred in the summer of 1988 near Bishopville, South Carolina. And that's in the proximity of a place called Skateboard Swamp. And in the summer of that year, people in the area began to report seeing some sort of a anthropomorphic creature or entity of some sort there in and about Skateboard Swamp. And the locals began to call it the Lizard Man. And the first time it came upon the radar of the police and the press was when a couple who lived right there on the edge of Skateboard Swamp called and said their car had been vandalized, you know, overnight. And the weird thing about that was, is it looked like animals had damaged the car. So they put in a call to the uh, Lee County Sheriff's Office and Sheriff Liston Truesdale and some deputies went down and investigated, looked at the car and they were kind of mystified because sure enough, there was all kinds of animal tracks and uh, damage to the car with with the trim torn off and wires torn out of the engine and all sorts of stuff. And, you know, ultimately, they're like, we don't really know what to make of this. You know, you live at the edge of a swamp. Perhaps some animals were fighting um, or what have you. And as they were leaving, one of the locals said, well, maybe it was the lizard man. And Sheriff Truesdale said, what do you mean lizard man? And said, well, people have been seeing this creature in and around this area. And so he, you know, kind of thought, well, whatever, have these people come talk to me then. Well, that ended up getting printed in the papers because some news hounds had followed along. And uh, once that got in the paper, a couple of weeks later, a man brought his son into the sheriff's office and uh, this young man, uh, Christopher Davis, had quite a story to tell. He told Sheriff Truesdale that a couple of weeks back, he had had a flat tire in the Skateboard Swamp area at about 2 a.m. while he was coming home from work. He worked at a fast food place in Bishopville, which is a very small town, and you have to drive through Skateboard Swamp. And, of course, this is not where you want to have a flat tire. But anyway, as he finished up changing that, uh, and putting the jack and the tire back in his car, he sees some something coming uh, at him in the, in the moonlight through this fennel grass that's out there in this field where he was stopped. And he said it looked first like a human, which is scary enough because you're out there in the middle of nowhere. And then as it got closer, he believed that this was some kind of a 
creature of some sort, though it was on two legs, bipedal. Uh, you said it looked reptilian. It was either brown or green. Um, it had fingers that had three uh, uh, hands that had three finger, long fingers with claws. And anyway, of course, he jumps in the car and starts it up. And this thing tries to get in there and attack him. And he manages to speed away. And the thing is running after him down the road and jumps on the top of the car. And anyway, so he gets home and his dad was there. And after this happened, they didn't know what to say. I mean, you're not going to call the press or the police. They just kept quiet until that news story came out. Well, once that came out, other locals in the area began to say they had seen a similar creature either around that time or even going back a couple of years preceding those incidents. And then through the rest of the summer of 1988, there was massive press, press coverage. I mean, it was like lizard mania. Uh, the Dan Rather was on site doing broadcasts out of Skateboard Swamp. There was newspaper coverage that was picked up by the Associated Press. It was in all the local newspapers. It was everywhere. The Oprah show was calling Christopher Davis, um, unprecedented sort of a thing. And all the while, Sheriff Truesdale followed the case and was meticulous about documenting this, not that he believed there was necessarily a lizard man, but just that he, it was his duty to follow up. And he felt like if it's a rogue bear, if it's somebody playing a prank, uh, it was his duty to follow up because if he didn't, people would say, you know, you were negligent if somebody got killed or whatever happened. So there was truckloads of people down there with guns going in the swamp. And of course, like any of these cases, you know, rumors that, this person or that person was responsible for these sightings and, uh, you know, a plethora of different theories and, and news stories from just simply covering that to obviously silly ones where they portrayed the creature as having a tail and a big alligator mouth, Godzilla looking, though that's not what people reported. They reported something that was much more uh, a bit practical and in haunting in that it was human-like, but it was covered in scales and it stood upright. It didn't have a tail. It, you know, no special powers. You just would see it and it would disappear in the swamp. So, uh, you know, long story short, it was one of those that I was enamored with this case and just the fact that it was this sort of almost to me like a creature from the Black Lagoon in modern times um, that had been pursued by the police and mentioned in many cryptozoology texts, um, but nobody had ever really written a comprehensive book. So during um, back at a time when I went on a swamp tour um, and went out to Bishopville and went to Skateboard Swamp and spent some time with Sheriff Truesdale and also partly due to Micah actually suggesting that perhaps I should write a book on this, all of that kind of came together uh, and resulted in my book, Lizard Man, The True Story of the Bishopville Monster. So in, in many ways, I approached it much like uh, like a cryptozoology case because people are seeing a perceived physical creature in a swampy environment, a rugged, remote, hard to get to place. But of course, this type of when you're dealing with any sort of a reptilian type thing, you know, it does cross over into that uh, category of, of extraterrestrial or this theory that reptilians, uh, subterranean reptilian race lives underground. And is it one of those? 
Um, there's a lot of ways you can go in, in trying to run down any explanation for this. But, you know, like most of my books, I just simply tell the story and the story unto itself is intriguing. No matter what we conclude, it may or may not be. Uh, Lyle, I had a quick question for you. I know you spent a lot of time, obviously, uh, in Boggy Creek, but how much time did you did you spend in Bishopville for the Lizard Man? I spent a week down there. Um, obviously, yeah, it's with Boggy Creek. I can go there just about any time, three and a half hours away. With that one, um, I went there and with the intention of writing a book on swamps that had strange things. So I went there and luckily I spent time. And the fortunate thing was, is I was given access to all the police reports, all the photos, everything, and had uh, Sheriff Truesdale, who was retired at the time, and he's no longer with us. He he literally took me around. I went to houses uh, where the witnesses, some of the witnesses were, and we were able to interview them. So it was a very concise and quick way to really delve into this subject. Um, and then, you know, when I came home, I then continued to interview various people or follow up with all the newspaper accounts to to ultimately build the entire story, which is not just in 1988. It's, you know, there's preceding and post sightings that continued for several years down there. I mean, is this the only place that, that these things are cited? No, it, it's certainly kind of the most famous uh, of these, you know, just because of the massive amount of press coverage and things. And it was concentrated. There was a lot of sightings, but it's not the only sighting of a what we would call lizard man would be a category of of cryptid um there's been sightings in you know new jersey texas louisiana mississippi um just just sporadic though i mean it's it's nothing like say bigfoot where you have thousands of sightings they're very uh few and far between but there certainly are similar ones everywhere Lyle, I want to ask you something too, you know, uh, again, with kind of, you know, the main focus of your work and increasingly over time, even my own, uh, although that's kind of been a long held interest, just, you know, the Sasquatch phenomena broadly in North America and also relic hominoids around the world. Is there any way in your mind that the lizard man thing is somehow reconcilable with hairy bipeds and hominids? Because a lot of people's argument against something like lizard man would be that, you know, we haven't seen something, a bipedal humanoid type you know, lizard-like creature since maybe the, the era of the dinosaurs, and even those weren't quite like us. What if this was, you know, something that gave the appearance of, of scales or something? I mean, what are your thoughts in that regard, being a, a Bigfoot researcher primarily? Yeah, that was one of, and perhaps my favorite and most grounded explanation was that, yeah, biologically, we have no precedent for any sort of a reptilian human or a hybrid or a humanoid and like you say, even the dinosaurs, those are, though there's been some theories and I talk about those in the book, like this dinosauroid where they theorized if the, if some of those creatures had survived, that they would have eventually walked upright and become more anthropomorphic, you know, but um, given what we have, I thought that the descriptions of the creature in around a swamp, it could have easily been, uh, perhaps a Sasquatch with either just simply wet, covered in algae, or one that's infected by mange, uh, has some sort of skin condition, um, because, you know, the sightings aren't, they're very brief. I mean, you know, people aren't studying this creature for very long because either it's quickly moving across and disappearing into the woods, or it's frightening, 
in which, you know, one guy just got on his bike and rode off because it's scary. So um, within that sort of conditions, it's dark, it's brief. You could easily see a Sasquatch um, that's wet and interpret that as it, maybe it was scaly or maybe it was green. So it, it's weird to explain one cryptid with another cryptid, but I think that's a good theory. Well, but, you know, you bring up something else really interesting that I got to throw in there. Uh, you know, when we talk about like mange or something like that, you know, right behind you, Ryan, you've got your chupacabra uh, poster. And, uh, you know, with the reports of raccoons, foxes, I've seen a fox in the wild with mange and it is it really throws you off because you don't know at first what you're looking like. You're used to, you know, used to seeing that red color, you know, the, the tail, the bushy tail. Uh, but if if we can suppose that Sasquatch is a biological reality and it's a hair covered, you know, uh, mammal, I mean, it would be equally able to, you know, acquire mange. Uh, so how would a Sasquatch look <laughs> if it were ridden with mange or something along those lines? That's a really interesting point too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you saw that, you would, you know, you know, scramble your mind. What is that? And you're, you know, you may <laughs> not say Sasquatch, but you're not going to say bear. You're just simply going to, and the locals, again, you know, that's the name they gave it, which has a lot of connotations to Lizard Man. But, you know, in all these cases, you know, the newspaper, they just give it a name and, you know, who knows what it was. Conversely, the wild, history. As, as, as fascinating and I think as valid uh, a tact as it would be to think about, you know, uh, Harry Hominid that, you know, he has some sort of mange or something. Because like you say, the sightings are brief. If indeed... It is something that is either more reptilian or amphibious, like, say, um, the Thetis Lake monster from Canada, which had the whole nine yards of the big punk rock frill, the actual silver scales. Um, you, you definitely, you know, you, you are a great cryptozoological, you know, investigator and author. And I know that you have biases there, but I don't presume to know, like, what your thoughts would be on to as to what could represent these things that seem to be distinctly, if not non-mammalian, just not a classic misidentified Sasquatch, something that definitely seems to have reptilian and or amphibious uh, attributes. Where, where, where would you think this would fit in, in the, I guess, the scale of both you know, Darwinian evolution and cryptozoology? I, I think really the only place perhaps is if some undocumented, unknown a dinosaur had survived miraculously all this time without uh, being seen that again, this theory, you know, done by put together by guys more qualified that tetrapod kind of dinosaurs would evolve in this uh, upright walking bipedal progression, uh, partly because as their brains got bigger or they became smarter and things like this, that, adjustments would be made in the head and the way they carried the head and, you know, this sort of thing, that if something had survived and uh, then it perhaps it would appear like people are describing this lizard man. So it would have to be something that was here all along. I mean, it's, it's too big of a creature to just be an offshoot of a, any sort of normal lizard, even a Komodo dragon. I mean, those are big, but they're a far cry from something standing up that looks anything like, you know, humanoid. So, but the problem with that, of course, is it's like, you know, how could there be only one? I mean, if something like that survived, you would expect 
more, a little more sightings or something else, which makes it sort of an anomaly, something that was just there and, and gone. And, you know, the, the thought of this lone surviving dinosaur or something that evolved is romantic, but it can't be just one. It'd have to be multiple. And I think you'd have more sightings in South Carolina, for example. So that's the only way I could fit it in is if it was something that had changed over time and become this. What fascinates me is, is, especially in the Ohio River area, just obviously it is a hotbed for cryptozoological, ufological, paranormal madness. But the river monsters from the indescribable Octoman to the green clawed beast, which was never seen, but just yanked a woman, you know, like the day after the Hopkinsville goblins. I mean, it's a paradise of weird there. Um, if there was something, I'm just going to wildly speculate, amphibious, and it could just as easily spend its time sleeping in the mud, breathing the water, eating the fish, having no reason to interact with the hairless apes topside because we're just trouble and we own guns. Would you think that there's any chance that something like that that's just smart enough to avoid us could represent uh, a small portion of what these sightings are rather than a lone air breather in a swamp? It's possible, certainly. I mean, and I certainly never rule anything out because we we have to rule everything in until we can you know, find an explanation. So yeah, certainly it's not out of the question, though improbable, it's not impossible that something like that could survive. And you do have those other, and I talk about this in the book, the Ohio River incident where the thing reached up and grabbed the woman, the Thetis Lake monster, uh, the Loveland frog, anywhere you have these sort of anomalous, amphibious reptilian creatures that are big enough and that appear to walk on two legs, you know, not out of the question because a lot of the places where they're going to live are, you know, a swamp. I mean, there's not, you can't develop all of that. There's not many people walking, you know, nobody's hiking and biking through there. I mean, you have hunters and canoes, but there, you know, you could live back in there relatively untouched. Who knows? Now I may be accused of being primate centric here, <laughs> gentlemen and lady, but uh, I'll share this this following passage from the Tete de Boulay uh, about their Wittigo or Windigo traditions, different variants on the same concept, you know, the cannibalistic giants in Native American Indian folklore. But the account here, and this one actually comes to us from John M. Cooper's article, The Cree Wittigo Psychosis. I've been researching this stuff today, can you tell? And the account goes that the Wittigo used to rub himself like the animals against the fir, spruce, and other resinous trees. And then when he was thus covered with gum or resin, he would go roll in the sand so that one would have thought that after many operation of this kind, he was made of stone. And it got me thinking, I mean, that certainly might give one the appearance, uh, you know, with hair covered in resin and then with, you know, the dust and the stone sticking to that. I mean, a scaly kind of appearance, too. So uh, it, what's interesting is that is a traditional motif of the quote unquote stone giant throughout all the Native American traditions, I know, especially with Lyle, I'm preaching to the choir because he reads so much of this stuff, too. But I, I'd wondered about that in relation to the, the lizard man idea as well with the scaly appearance. Yeah, I mean, that that's another thing. You know, it's intentionally rolling in the mud and it drying and caking and any number of things like that to try to reconcile what it was people are seeing that gave the impression of scale. So and one other really interesting thing was, as I discovered during the process of researching the book, that uh, the Native Americans of that area, 
that lived along the PD River and Santee Rivers and all those that ran up and down through South Carolina, they had a stories of a race of beings that they it translated as something called sharp tails. Um, but this race of beings that would appear every once in a while and come and visit. And they had to dig holes because they had these tails, but short tails, um, hard sort of tails. But they would sit and visit with them or interact in some way with these creatures. And the description of them is not very far from sort of a lizard man type thing. I mean, they've got a tail. They're coming from the sea or, or some, you know, on the coast. And, you know, they're seen for a while. And they said when the fish kind of ran dry or something, they never saw them again. But I thought it was really coincidental and really weird that the Native Americans would have any sort of a story about, you know, anything that we could equate with a lizard man in that very area. And certainly people, you know, I got to say that like Christopher Davis, this young man that made up this, you know, uh, or that reported the story, people say, well, he made it up or whatever. You know, he would have never known about these, the history of those kind of sightings. And there was theories that a local farmer dressed up in a costume and he was the lizard man and stuff. But those never account for the fact that there was all these sightings going on for several years and some of them quite credible in which five people saw it at once. That's not a farmer. I mean, that guy would have been super busy running in and out of uh, the swamp and such. So if you just take out the hoax aspect, it becomes more weird. And the fact that perhaps, you know, the Native Americans had an encounter with something they couldn't explain. I'll just add one thing because, Lyle, you know, I mean, I, being in North Carolina, I've been down there to skateboard, uh, passing through it, but I've actually been out in a canoe in uh, adjacent areas, including like uh, Four Hole Swamp. And when you encounter a cottonmouth water moccasin with a head as big as your fist, you know, coiled up over there on the bank, the first time you see one resting in his environment like that, you know, and you realize you're the intruder. The last thing you're going to want to go go do is get in a suit and go trudging through those swamps. I mean, you are risking your life, so do so at your own peril. <laughs> Absolutely, that none of that holds water. It's you know, I was fascinated. Oh no, go ahead, Ryan, please. Oh, sorry, Rob. Um, I I just wanted to ask Lyle your opinion on the cultural significance of something like the lizard man. I mean, you've got Flatwoods Monster, uh, you've got Mothman, you've got the Roswell UFO crash. Like these events bring a lot of commerce into these areas where this happens. So um, I, I, I'd love to get your opinion on Bishopville. Like, is this the case there? Do they have a festival? Um, how does the sort of identity of the area, um, does it morph and change when something like this occurs? I mean, I know for Roswell, like without that festival they do every year, that place would probably disappear to be completely honest. So yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's one of the things I like in writing these books, especially where it's a concentrated case, because I like to, you know, what were the effects of this thing on the on the town itself and the people? And in the case of Bishopville, um, not unlike some of them, it's kind of been a love-hate relationship with that. I think uh, while some of the townsfolk, you know, entertain it, or at least even if they just don't believe a lizard man is as interesting folklore, you know, they they – they just count it as part of the history. And then you've got a section of people who just are like, oh, it's embarrassing. They don't like it. Um, there's a restaurant there, a restaurant there that uh, has a lizard man 
motif to it. It's called Harry and Harry Two, and the sign out front has a lizard man on it. It's really cool. Um, and there was actually a lizard man festival that happened a few years ago uh, that was put on down there, and I was you know the keynote speaker for that, obviously. And uh, but it was not put on as much by the community community themselves. Uh, there's a cotton museum down there, the South Carolina Cotton Museum. And the people who work there and run that, they love this because it's just part of their the fabric of the history of Bishopville. And they recognize that, hey, it's just part of our culture now. And, you know, if you Google Bishopville, you know, you're going to come up with Lizard Man. You can't escape it. So they've, over time, people have tried to convince the local town commission or, you know, the the board of directors or whomever that let's capitalize on this. It is what it is. Let's have a lizard man festival. And while they've incorporated the lizard man into their cotton festivals, there's, you know, a float with a lizard man. They, they haven't really completely yet embraced that. Hey, let's make this fun and have a festival. So other than the one which was organized by somebody who actually didn't live in Bishopville, um, that's as far as it's gotten. So it's still in the kind of, Love, hate, I think. Well, I think the six of us have probably encountered more than once, and, I, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening to this understand this, is that um, the average people out there and the skeptics that disguise themselves as debunkers are always saying, oh, they turned a profit. Oh, they exploited it. Oh, a small town wanted to celebrate the Mothman or the Lizard Man or a, a UFO crash in Roswell. Somehow that like um, taints the veracity of it. But in my mind, a local chamber of commerce and a local community trying to exploit anything they can to bring some attention on the traditional history of their town to turn a buck for their citizenry in no way negates the, the truthfulness of the original eyewitness sighting. Like if, you know, Dover wanted to have a demon days, I think I think all states should have cryptid mascots and should be celebrated. But I think it's very important to to realize and, and I know it sounds like I'm, I'm on a soapbox, so I'll make it quick, that just because a small town exploits an experience that happened does not mean that the experience itself was created for the purpose of exploitation. Amen. Yeah, you're precisely right. And I mean, it's it's they, they just need to look at it more in terms of people are fascinated with monsters. I mean, look at all the cable TV shows. They don't realize that, hey, having a, a local creature it's part of the culture. Even if you just look at it as, Hey, you know, we may not believe in it, but let's do something. But yeah, that doesn't erase the fact that in 1988, we had real people undergoing lie detectors investigated by the sheriff's department who claimed to have seen something. And if, you know, if they want to have a festival, the Mothman festival, that has no effect on what actually happened. And, you know, that's great if they do. I love this stuff. You know, I hope they have a festival just because it's you meet people and talk to people. And maybe that's when some person comes out, comes to the festival, said, well, you know, I saw it, but I never said anything in 1980. Right. I've yeah. met, you know, people that criticize researchers and stuff are going to these conferences like it's a big money thing. It's like I have met a lot of people by networking, even in a small town. I would have never met these people because when they saw the festival, they thought, well, I guess most they're not going to laugh at me if I go to this and then they come up to me and say, you know, I saw something and boom, now I've got another entry into the log of sightings that I would never have if the community hadn't embraced it. 
Yeah, Lyle, by the way, also, you know, people who criticize researchers for going to these events, you know, y'all are just in it for the money. I also like to point out if I wanted to make money, I'd go be an investment banker. All right. <laughs> Last thing I'd yeah. be doing money. What is this money you speak? Yeah, I know. Yeah, seriously, I'm counting all my tens of dollars that I make. <laughs> you know, Spend that stimulus check uh, wisely. <laughs> the thing is, is, I mean, most of us who are involved in this kind of stuff, you know, reality is we do other things, you know, often to supplement our income, you know. We're driven, a lot of us, I'd like to think, you know, by a true passion, like you're saying, Lyle, for, you know, the interest that we all share in this. And again, you know, people who are participating there in the chat, same thing, by the way. Uh, hello to my brother, Jazz, who's in there. And I saw some Hadel talk a second ago going on over there. So, Shannon, <laughs> yeah, they're on to us. Uh, go, oh, let's go, Ike. Where's Ike? Come on. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's fun subjects. And, you know, and even, you know, going to a, the Roswell Festival or some meet, you know, it's fun for everybody, no matter what interest you have, from a researcher all the way to just somebody who, I like UFOs. It it provides a an outlet for all levels of interest to just to come together and to, you know, celebrate these as part of our history because they're the fun things in life to me. You know, it's like, uh, look at what's going on in the world. At least we can kind of take a break from that and talk about some really strange phenomenon that's still going on. Uh, it, it, it's a, a good diversion, you know, mm-hmm. here, here. Yeah. Right. That's why Derek and I created this and we'll be cutting you guys as massive checks later. Okay. Those will be in the mail at some point next week. Yeah. As soon as uh, mine clears. Yeah. I mean, there is a, a stipulation there, but yeah. Derek, do you have anything to say in, in closing here? I just wanted to ask a, wanted to ask a quick question, um, probably Lyle, I guess. These footprints that are associated with, I believe, the Chris Davis encounter. Uh, what are your thoughts on these things? Because I look at them and, and well, I'll, I'll wait and say what I think after you do. But I, I'm curious to see what you think about the footprints that were found. In foot, the yeah. Tracks. yeah, I get asked about that. And, and uh, essentially, those were uh, a few weeks after the Christopher Davis incident. Uh, the sheriff's department got a call late at night and a couple of the deputies went out to this uh, Bramlett road, which runs down by skateboard swamp. And they were patrolling because this woman had said she heard some weird stuff that they wouldn't have normally responded to But in this case they did, but they went past and as they were coming back, they saw what looked like footprints across the road and they got out and looked and they saw these uh, rather large, they have oval pads and there's three big toes and they're rather exaggerated. They look monstrous, but somewhat not, you know, biologically sound or solid as far as what an animal print would make, but they could see no evidence of how they were made. There was no footprints. There was no car treads or tire tracks and nothing. They just, there was big things and they tromped off way off into the woods and they kind of followed them for a while with a flashlight. And then they got spooked and were like, I don't know what this is and left. So the next day they came down there and got the uh, game warden and everybody else and Sheriff Truesdale and they, uh, you know, the, the wildlife commission just kind of wrote it off. They're like, these don't even look real. Um, but fortunately they had the wherewithal to cast these tracks and they cast several of them. That's the good thing about this case. Usually the police don't do anything. I've got affidavits. I've got drawings. I've got the footprint cast to to be able to look at today. Um, but the tracks to me, I mean, if I look at them, they just look hokey um, right off the bat. And, and 
the story behind those as an investigator, I mean, I, I talk about this as it unfolds in the book, so I try not to do spoilers if somebody wants to read it, but um, ultimately, yes, those are suspect at the very least. They don't look natural um, and they are exaggerated and they perpetuate this three-toed track thing. People are constantly with a big, with the Boggy Creek and the Honey Island Swamp Monster and the Lizard Man, always a three-toed track. Um, but the thing I believe about this is, is this happens in a few of these cases where all these sightings start coming out. Well, you've always got jokers who are wanting to add to it. And again, right. it doesn't take take away from the, what the witnesses originally reported, but you've got to be suspect that now kids are naturally going to go out and do something to kind of add to it because it's going to be in the newspaper. But I don't think those are tied to the sightings. You know, these footprints are hokey and you can go down to, to the South Carolina Cotton Museum and see those footprints to this day. Um, so I, I really think that was just something that somebody tried to add to the case and it wasn't um, the actual footprint of the creature that people had reported. I mean, I'm sure you might agree. Yeah, definitely. What were your thoughts <laughs> on that, Derek? Uh, just pretty much the same thing. I mean, they just don't look biological. The three-toe thing really throws me off for a uh, bipedal creature like that, unless it's some sort of bird. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, my thought was that maybe it was a gator track that somebody kind of messed with a little bit to make it a little longer, make it look a little more humanistic or, or whatever to, to alter the, the shape of it. But uh, yeah. I'm not a, just like the Honey Island Swap Monster tracks. I'm just not a big fan. of. of yeah. And, and they're definitely not gator tracks that were altered. Um, and there was, the, there were multiple tracks, you know, usually if it's just one track, then it's, you know, who knows, but there were multiple and they all look the same. The sheriffs, they still can't figure out how they were made. And that was kind of a weird thing unto itself is how those tracks were made in that short period of time that those police had driven by. Well, awesome, guys. Well, um, Lyle, let's start with you. Uh, Where can everybody find you and your work? Uh, Just drop by LyleBlackburn.com. And that's got links to all my various projects, books, uh, participation in the Small Town Monsters documentaries, which you can see those on Amazon Prime. You can get my books on Amazon as well in both paperback and Kindle. And you can um, buy those direct from my store. There's a link at LyleBlackburn.com. So just drop by there. And if you've seen anything weird or that uh, you think I should know about, definitely uh, drop me a line. Micah, how about you? Yeah, it's easy to find. MicahHanks.com is, of course, the website. And uh, right there on the website, you'll find all the podcasts and other stuff I'm involved with, including all the archaeology stuff. And uh, there'll be some new projects in the next, uh, hopefully, few weeks. So even some crypto-themed stuff. So I'm kind of excited about that. Mr. Plaidman? Uh, you can find me at SomewhereInTheSkies.com, all my upcoming projects uh, on the Trail of UFOs. Be sure to check out Micah and I are both a part of that amazing project by Small Town Monsters. Um, you can watch uh, my CW Network television show, Mysteries Decoded, for free at CWC.com. And otherwise, yep, just look me up. I'm everywhere. And Mr. Rob Morphy. Um, you can find the podcast I do, the Kryptonaut Podcast, with Mark Stores and Chris Carnicelli at KryptonautPodcast.com. But it's available on iTunes, Stitcher, every platform available. Um, Our resource site, which was formerly American Monsters, is now Cryptopia.us, and that's where you can see a lot of articles. And if anyone just wants to check out my artwork, robmorphy.com. 
And uh, Derek Hayes, don't you have a little show called Paranormal Caught on Camera coming on tonight? Isn't that why we did tonight's edition a little bit early? Do yeah, we had to move this up. Uh, they moved the show to Sundays, so apparently at uh, six o'clock Pacific time, nine o'clock Eastern, uh, Paranormal Con and Camera on Travel Channel. You can also find me uh, Monsters Among Us podcast wherever you can find podcasts. And of course, uh, into the fray radio.com for into the fray. Thank you guys so much for doing this with us, and uh, I'm sure all of us will be talking again soon at some point. So uh, everybody out there, thanks for joining us in the chat. And uh, we'll we'll see you on the uh, the flippity flop, everybody. Good night and good luck. Good night, guys. Take care. Yes. Good night. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>。<laughs> for this very special panel discussion. Be sure to check out all the awesome stuff everyone is up to from tonight, and please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review somewhere in the skies on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show. It helps us gain visibility and find new listeners. We are currently in the top ten podcasts in the social sciences on Apple Podcasts. So, with your help, I know we can keep climbing those charts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Somewhere Skies and Instagram at Somewhere Skies Pod. Mostly, all of our interviews on the podcast are also available on YouTube in full video format and accompanying media. So, if you want the full experience and to get other exclusive video content, such as our case files and vintage sky series, head on over to YouTube and subscribe and turn on notifications for the Ryan Sprague channel. You can also check out the official T Public store for exclusive Somewhere in the Skies merchandise. We've got a couple really cool new retro designs in the store, so be sure to check them out by heading over to tpublic.com. That's T-E-E public.com and search for the Somewhere in the Skies store. Thank you as always to the E1 Podcast Network, KGRA Radio, and especially to you for listening. I'll see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Hey guys, Ryan Sprague here. And whether I'm researching, working on the podcast, or sky watching from my roof late at night, I need something to keep me awake, alert, and ready to tackle the mysteries in our skies. That's why I'm so excited to announce the launch of the official Somewhere in the Skies coffee. That's right. We've got our own coffee roast. Black Triangle Coffee is a veteran-owned small batch coffee roaster out of Santan Valley, Arizona. As a coffee fiend and former specialty coffee barista, I've been working very closely with owner and head roaster Andrew Lowe to create the perfect blend to reflect somewhere in the skies. 
our beans are sourced from local farms off the shores of Lake Kivu. This Rwandan coffee bean is full-bodied with tastes of red apple, hibiscus, dried fig, sweet orange, and cocoa. It's bold, it's dark, and it is sure to keep you running on all cylinders. While you listen to the podcast, hunt down UFOs, or if you're on the run from the men in black. So help support Black Triangle Coffee by ordering the Somewhere in the Skies roast today. Listeners of Somewhere in the Skies get an exclusive discount right now by using the promo code SITSPOD at checkout. That's S-I-T-S-POD. To order, head on over to blacktrianglecoffee.com. Remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching or drinking Somewhere in the Skies. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.